that's the power of prohibition, and that's I think that really shows you how you can turn minimally processed agricultural and chemical commodities, which is what these drugs basically are, uh, and make them into something priceless over which people will kill and slaughter uh, and, and fight wars over. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. The United States is in the midst of the worst drug crisis in decades, if not history, as rampant overdoses cause thousands of bodies to fill up morgues and criminal penalties related to drug use only become more draconian. But this mess, which began about a century ago, did not start in a vacuum, and has seen a dramatic ripple effect across the globe. The war on drugs, which is really just the war on drug users, i.e. people, affects a lot more than just rural white Americans. My name is Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. The focus on American drug use can be a bit myopic, so today, let's broaden that view. My guest is Sanho Tree, a drug policy historian and fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, where he directs its drug policy project. Tree is an expert on many foreign drug markets, including Colombia, Afghanistan, the Philippines, and more. In the late 80s, he worked for the International Human Rights Law Group. He's been featured in over a dozen documentaries, has written op-eds for the New York Times, and much more. Sanho, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Let's start with some background on you. How did you get involved with IPS, and what attracted you to this position of advocating for the end to the war on drugs? Well, I've been at IPS uh, on drug policy for 20 years now, and before that I worked as a historian here, diplomatic and military history. But um, looking at drug policy, it brings together all the different things I've worked on in in the past in terms of human rights, diplomacy, uh, investigative journalism, uh, militarization, uh, all these things. It's one of the most interdisciplinary problems I've ever studied, the drug war is. Uh, and that's also one of the reasons it's been so difficult for politicians and bureaucracies to solve, is that it crosses so many different silos and it's so complex that very few people or, or agencies are responsible for the big picture. They do their their you know their, their, their slice of the pie. So they get money to do border protection or interdiction or eradication or policing or treatment, um, there's really no one whose job it is to look at the big picture from, you know, 40,000 feet and say, hey, this whole drug war thing is kind of nuts. <laughs> you know, you're all working across purposes very often. Yeah. It has been an insane couple of months in America, which is saying something, but we have this whole government shutdown, the president holding things hostage, essentially, and, and having these press conferences, unless he gets this wall, all of this really boils down to immigration. Um, I, I kind of want to take a bird's eye view of the migrant crisis at the border because it is my belief, uh, based on the evidence that I've seen, that drug prohibition is uh, really what has largely destabilized communities in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and elsewhere. It's empowered gangs and crippled the economy. Uh, that's part of the reason why people are fleeing to America. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it's because of our hypocritical drug consumption and our export of really shitty drug policy. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, there's no doubt that it's helped fuel the crisis in Central America. Uh, a lot of the, the gang violence, however, is directed internally, um, and, and it's not necessarily related to drugs. It's uh, very locally. It's, it's extortion of small businesses and individuals uh, and, and local crime. Uh, but there's no question that drugs have certainly uh, served as a way of, of funding a lot of this stuff uh, or giving protection to drug traffickers, for instance. 
So yes, uh, in that sense, our, our drug war certainly helped fuel the, the, this, this crisis. But it also comes out of uh, uh, decades of uh, conflict and, and human rights abuses throughout the region. Um, Ronald Reagan fought a series of dirty wars, uh, counterinsurgency wars in Central America in the 1980s, really suppressed uh, those working for human rights, labor rights, uh, land reform, all that was during the Cold War was thought to be, you know, communist or Marxist inspired. And so the United States helped fund death spots basically in El Salvador, in Honduras and other places in Guatemala. Uh, basically, they killed tens of thousands of people uh, who were working to make the, the region a better place. Uh, and so when you do that, you, you pay the price down down the line. And so that's what we're dealing with now. We need to think about these problems generationally um, as well. Because, you know, the, the chickens come home to roost, so to speak. People grow up in this situation, and uh, it tends to, to fuel these problems. Is it a stretch to say the U.S. has used the war on drugs as a, as a pretense for controlling Central and South American governments? I mean, the U.S. has a vested interest in extracting wealth from these nations, not just cheap bananas, but oil and other natural resources. But, but how do they do that exactly? Well, uh, so the drug war... After the end of the Cold War, uh, beginning in the 1990s, you see the drug war replacing the Cold War as the U.S. rationale for intervening in Central and South America. Um, if you look at the so-called School of the Americas in Georgia, where we train, uh, or used to be called School of the Americas, where we train uh, foreign militaries, mostly from Latin America, uh, and we trained a lot of test squads and, and junta leaders and all these you know, creepy people throughout uh, the decades of the Cold War, um, and as soon as the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union collapsed, um, they, the curriculum at the School of the Americas changed, and it pivoted toward counter-narcotics. And that becomes the, the new way of uh, justifying uh, a lot of militarization and aid uh, and military-to-military con- contact uh, and, and training of, of, of foreign troops. Um, so in that sense, uh, the military looked for a different mission after the Cold War. Uh, and counter-narcotics became uh, one of those things. It, it's interesting, though, that um, a lot of the military doesn't like the counter-narcotics role. Um, they hate the drug war. And ironically, it was Casper Weinberger, who was Ronald Reagan's defense secretary, who fought passionately to keep the Pentagon out of the drug war. Um, and when I talk to career military people in the Pentagon, they, you know, they'll tell me privately, there are two tours of duty you never want to pull because they're considered career killers. Um, one is peacekeeping, and the other is counter-narcotics. And the reason is, neither one of those roles is a traditional military function, and there is no victory to be had at the end of the day. So if you have a perfectly calm and peaceful society, you don't have car bombs, you don't have terrorism, you don't have drugs, if you do your job well, no one will notice anything. You get no credit whatsoever, right? And the normal is not something people write about or, or give medals over. Uh, but if you fail at your mission, uh, guess who gets the blame? You do. <laughs> and so uh, in that sense, uh, you, you know, career military people tend to want to avoid uh, those types of uh, tours of duty. That brings me to Afghanistan. Um, I interviewed once uh, Senator Thomas Massey uh, from uh, Kentucky, and he was like, why don't we just burn down all these poppy fields? And a military analyst told him, um, that it would basically destroy the economy there because it's so reliant on the poppies. Um, yeah, but yeah. It, it, the, the, the military there does seem to turn a blind eye to the poppy fields there. 
and partly because they have to. Uh, it's just, that's just the reality of the situation. Even if they wanted to eradicate these poppies, it wouldn't be possible. Uh, the Bush administration tried to do that, and they spent a lot of money. And basically what they did was end up alienating these peasant farmers and pushing them back into the arms of the Taliban. Uh, and so when Obama comes in, uh, his uh, 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 point person for the region, uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, was Ambassador Richard Holbrook, who's a legendary uh, State Department figure. One of the few people with a kind of political clout um, required to tell the drug warriors to basically stay in your lane and get the hell out of our, uh, their business uh, of diplomacy uh, and, and really messing things up. So basically they read them the riot act and said, you drug warriors, you spent millions of dollars, you've alienated these farmers, you've accomplished nothing, you can't maintain any kind of, of sustained reduction of poppies in, the, in, uh, in this region because you, you, they don't do alternative development. Uh, they focus more on eradication. Um, and so it puts the farmers in an impossible situation. Uh, and so they said, well, we're not going to do eradication under the Obama administration uh, unless it's voluntary and there are alternatives lined up for these farmers. Otherwise, uh, you're, just, you're just pissing off farmers for no good reason whatsoever. It's also important to realize that this is a product of our previous war in, in Afghanistan. So the 1980s, uh, after the Soviets invaded on Christmas Day of 1979, uh, the Reagan administration spent you know the next eight years obsessing about how do you defeat the Soviets in Afghanistan? How do you overthrow them and, and kick them out? Uh, and so they became quite obsessed with that. Uh, and one of the things they did was turn a blind eye while the Northern Alliance, our allies, um, turned to the, the poppy. Uh, industry to support their war. Wars are very expensive to wage. Uh, so we did turn a blind eye back then, um, and in those years since then, the poppy crop has just exploded. Um, so that uh, by the late 90s, for instance, when Afghanistan was in you know total turmoil, no no faction was in control of the entire country. There was basically no 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 central government. Anyone could do whatever they wanted. So farmers planted lots and lots of poppy in the late 90s because they also had record droughts during that time. And poppies do well in a drought, whereas food crops require, you know, uh, six to eight waterings per season. Poppy crops can get by with maybe two waterings. Uh, and so that's what people did. They planted so much poppy in the late 90s that a kilo of, of dry opium fell to about $30 a kilo in Kandahar. Think about the amount of labor it takes to go out and scrape up uh, enough resin and dry it uh, to to get a kilo for thirty dollars. That's how low uh, the production price can be for, for 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 opium. Now, what happens when we impose prohibition? Well, we have a perfect model of that. Um, Mullah Omar and the Taliban. By the time they seize power, and uh, in, in the middle of two thousand, Mullah Omar, the spiritual leader of the Taliban. Uh, he had a dream, and this is a part of the world where dreams are interpreted very seriously. And he said, it is no longer consistent with Islamic principles to grow more opium poppies. He said nothing about selling and trafficking the existing stockpiles of poppy, which was warehoused. They had so much of it. You know, you have to get a bumper crop. And so he put a ban on additional production. And the Taliban, and only the Taliban, could get away with that kind of, 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 of supply-side you know, eradication policy. They couldn't sustain it. It lasted for about a year, uh, and farmers literally starved uh, as they did this. But the result of that, that $30 kilo of dry opium that sold in Kandahar in the late 90s, by 9-11, by September 11, 2001, that exact same kilogram was worth about 
$740 wow. at the peak. All right, that's the power of prohibition. And that's, I think that really shows you how you can turn minimally processed agricultural and chemical commodities, which is what these drugs basically are, uh, and make them into something priceless over which people will kill and slaughter uh, and, and fight wars over. So this is a, a, uh, a self-made problem, right? Uh, prohibition is, we, we, the drug warriors have done what the alchemists of the Middle Ages could never do, right? They tried for centuries to find a formula to turn lead into gold. We, our drug warriors, have found a way to turn weeds and plants into gold, basically. <laughs> so, uh, score one for the drug war, right? This is what prohibition does. Yes, exactly. Wealth where there shouldn't be any. You mentioned alternatives to eradication. Uh, what are those? And, and are you talking about just like growing food that you can actually eat? I mean, you can eat poppies, but they're, they're not used for food uh, as much. Right. So I've uh, you know I've uh, been through years of a congressional testimony, and you hear these. Uh, you know, bureaucrats and politicians say, well, we just need to, you know, show these farmers that can grow uh, fruit, fruit trees, for instance. And literally, Congressman Duncan Hunter uh, said this, you know, uh, that if they grow fruit trees, then they'll have a crop every year and, uh, and then they can sustain themselves. Like, duh, like it never occurred to these farmers. They, may want, they might want to grow fruit trees. But what does that take in reality? Uh, that takes irrigation. That takes transportation infrastructure to get your products to market, uh, and uh, it takes processing so it doesn't rot by the time it gets to, to market. Um, you need, you know, uh, communications, cell phone networks in order to coordinate, uh, you know, your buyers and your sellers and getting things to markets. Uh, you, so for for decades we've been putting the cart before the horse, way before the horse. Uh, our politicians want to see, you know, direct results within a year or two or short term results. Uh, and so they demand eradication. They want to see some bang for their buck. Uh, but they're not willing to invest in the long term, which is what it really takes uh, to develop the, the road infrastructure and the irrigation systems, access to credit uh, and, and processing facilities that would make uh, farming a viable uh, thing. And so instead, what we've done in Afghanistan, what we've done in Colombia and other places is eradicate these crops uh, involuntarily for these farmers. And so in Colombia, we spent, uh, you know, uh, ten, about $10 billion uh, over, a, uh, you know, two decades to try to wipe out the coca crop in Colombia uh, using uh, spray planes mostly and a very powerful broad-spectrum herbicide. You've probably seen in your hardware store called Roundup. Right. We use a very potent form of this, an ultra-potent form of it. Uh, and we've spread it over millions of acres of Colombia, which is the second most biodiverse country in the world. And we've destroyed a lot of the ecosystem down there in a futile attempt to, to, to have a scorched earth policy to try to destroy the cocoa crops. Well, guess what? There's more cocoa than ever now. Um, because they never took into consideration, well, what happens when you do forced eradication, involuntary eradication? Um, cocoa farmers, cocoa makes, makes good economic sense for the farmers in Colombia. They tend to be living in very remote areas that's ungoverned by the central government, so they don't have access to the things that we take for granted, like roads <laughs> or electricity or infrastructure, or the things that our farmers uh, rely upon to get their crops to, to markets. Uh, it doesn't exist in, in, in uh, parts of m most of rural Colombia. So what they can do instead is grow a couple of acres of coca bushes. They could harvest those leaves and using very basic chemicals, uh, you, you know, uh, gasoline, sulfuric acid, ammonia, cement, and, and a few other uh, easily accessible chemicals, 
they can process those coca leaves into a kilo or two of coca paste, right? That's the crude form of cocaine that the traffickers, the middlemen will buy from them and then refine into pure cocaine hydrochloride for export. But this coca paste is easy to transport. You put that into a plastic tub, a little container, uh, or, or a, you know, a plastic shopping bag, and you can walk to the nearest village uh, or go on horseback or on motorcycle uh, and, and sell it. And it's used as, 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 as currency in parts of Colombia, in rural Colombia. Now, they'll, they'll measure grams of coca paste when you go buy groceries and stuff because, uh, you know, it's more, uh, more common than, than paper currency in some areas. Uh, but that coca paste is transportable, right? So it solves the infrastructure problem for them. Otherwise, they would have to uh, travel for many kilometers, um, grow hundreds or thousands of kilos of fruits and vegetables, to transport on vehicles they don't have, over roads that literally don't exist, to try to sell in markets both domestic and export that they can't get access to. And even if they could, they would have to compete against cheap agribusiness imports, very often subsidized by our tax dollars through these you know, trade deals, against which these poor peasant farmers don't stand a chance. They can't compete with Cargill and ADM and these agricultural giants uh, that dominate the global food industry. Uh, and so, what happens then when we forcibly eradicate their crops? Well, they go into food insecurity right away, mm-hmm. right? And so they panic. How are they going to feed their children next week, next month, next year? We've just destroyed their livelihood. Uh, and when they go into panic like that, and it's a very real uh, you know, fear. Uh, most Americans have, have never had to deal with this kind of food insecurity. You know, it's, it's a question of where are we going to eat tonight, not if we're going to eat tonight. And so when they panic, what is the one crop they know how to grow for which there are ready and willing buyers willing to pay a high price that's easy to transport? And that's the illicit crops. So it's back to coca or marijuana or poppies or whatever because it'll fetch a higher price, much higher price than growing fruits and vegetables. And it's easier to transport. So that's why this vicious cycle keeps uh, repeating itself. And the Trump administration, uh, again, it comes no surprise, uh, wants to use the big stick. He can only t- talk in terms of toughness. I'll be tougher than everyone else. I'll be tougher than my predecessors. And I'll beat the hell out of them. Uh, you can't coerce farmers into not being hungry. Um, any parent would do whatever it takes to feed their children. Um, that's no different in Colombia, Afghanistan, or the United States. Absolutely. So is there a solution, an alternative is forced eradication? Yes, well, there's regulation. So we see this in Bolivia, for instance. Uh, Bolivia is the first country to legalize and, and regulate coca production for traditional use uh, and for, for candies. And, and, and uh, you know, they use it uh, for flour. Uh, they can mix it with, with regular flour to bake cookies and cakes. It's high in protein. Uh, it's got iron, vitamin A, all of these other nutrients. And coca leaf, and it's also chewed and, and taken in tea, used in candy and sodas and liquor, whatever. Lots of different uses for it. But coca leaf in its natural state is not a bad plant at all. It's actually quite wonderful. It's, it's got a lot of benefits, and it's impossible to abuse in its natural state. Uh, I, I tried. I tried shoving as much coca in my mouth as it could hold, and you will never get high as you would off of cocaine. Um, and so in its natural state, coca is, is, is perfectly fine. Uh, and, uh, and so the Bolivian people, um, who are majority indigenous, uh, have fought for decades for the right to grow and to use coca traditionally, as they have done for thousands of years. 
And they finally won that right under President Evo Morales, who was the first indigenous leader of Bolivia to be elected president. And so they've set up a regulatory system where the cocoa growers' unions, and it's a unionized uh, industry in, in, in Bolivia. It has been even before it was legalized. Um, the unions are very disciplined, uh, and they regulate voluntarily uh, how much they're going to grow each of their members. And so each family is allowed to grow a, a it's called a cato of coca. It's a, a traditional unit of indigenous measure. It's about 40 meters by 40 meters. Uh, and that gives them uh, some predictable um, income that gives them food security. Now, once they have that, they're able then to save some money, plan for the future, and those that wish to diversify their economy, if you have some skills in auto repair or if you're good at cooking, you might open up a, a little cafe or a car repair shop or a mechanic shop or if you're good at cutting hair, you can do other things, right? And so I've seen small villages in rural Bolivia blossom uh, over the past you know, 15 years or so um, as they went from this conflict forced eradication mode where it was impossible to make progress because you never knew if your crops will be destroyed the next day or not. So people tried to overproduce to compensate for that. And now they have an orderly uh, allotment of how much each family can produce. They, they regulate where the coca leaves go so they make sure it goes to uh, traditional markets rather than to the black market to turn into cocaine. Um, and, and now you've got a diversification of local economies, uh, which is what we've been trying to get them to do for a long time. Right? And you can't do that at gunpoint. You can't do that when you threaten them and their food security. Uh, it's like a recession in the United States. So, if, for instance, after the 2008 crash, how many people are going to go and, and risk uh, opening up a cafe or, or, or a business uh, when there was so much uncertainty? Right? And it's only when people feel, have some predictability in their lives that they're willing to take those kinds of risks. And it's no different for, for, for farmers you know, who grow crops declared to be illicit. Bolivia is such a great example, but I think it's worth mentioning that in order for them to be successful, they also kick the DEA out of the country. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. Uh, the DEA has a long and horrible history in Bolivia. They you know, pushed draconian laws that are just unbelievable. Um, presumption of guilt and, and you know, people being locked up for, for years before even seeing a judge, before they're even tried. Uh, you could spend four to five years behind bars back then. Uh, before President Morales, uh, just awaiting to be to be heard by a judge, and you have to pay your own way, uh, and it's just a brutal, brutal situation. Uh, you know, the prison budget back then was like thirty-eight cents per prisoner per day. Uh, you know, uh, barbaric conditions. Uh, people, it got so bad. Prisoners in Bolivia, uh, who are low-level drug offenders for the most part, were sewing their lips shut with needle and thread because the world would not listen. To, to the injustice they were sub subjected to. Uh, some even crucified themselves in, a, in an attempt to be heard by the outside world. Um, under President Morales, that, that's pretty much changed now. So they, they actually have uh, you know, regulated coca economy, uh, and it, it took getting the DEA the hell out of there uh, because they were also interfe interfering in domestic politics as well. So, so we often talk about the Portugal model as a good model for uh, drug regulation, but the Bolivian model model is 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 that translatable? For coca, uh, for cocaine, it would be different. Um, but we have a, a model of regulated cocaine production in in Peru. Um, that's where the pharmaceutical cocaine comes from, and so they have a, a, a national monopoly called Inaco that uh, that produces the cocaine for for pharmaceutical use. 
and Coca-Cola gets the flavoring agent. Uh, it's been decoconized nowadays. And Peru also has a tradition of domestic uh, traditional use of coca, coca chewing and coca tea and that sort of thing. Um, in Colombia, though, uh, there are only a few indigenous uh, tribes that, that have a history of, of chewing coca. And so most of the coca in, in Colombia is used for the black market for illicit purposes. Do you think that would work, though, in, in, in Guatemala or, or Honduras? Well, those are more transit countries. So uh, Guatemala does produce a little bit of opium, uh, but uh, Guatemala and Honduras are more more transit, especially Guatemala. Um, so the traffickers in, in South America, mostly from Colombia, will use narco subs or boats or uh, planes or other w- uh, ways of, of shipping that stuff into Guatemala or southern Mexico um, to, so that it can be transported by land up to the border and, and across the United States. Uh, that's one common way to do it. But there are lots of different ports of entries and lots of different ways to smuggle. Um, so it, there's not a lot of production in Central America yet, um, although someday that could happen. Uh, it's important to realize that coca is not just an Andean phenomenon, even though we tend to think of it, we associate it with, with those three countries, of Bolivia, Peru, and, and Colombia. But you know, a century ago, um, coca grew all over the world. The Dutch had, enor- they had probably the largest coca plantations in the world in, in Indonesia. And the Japanese had large coca plantations uh, in the place where I was born, in Taiwan, uh, and in Iwo Jima as well. The U.S. had experimental coca plots for research purposes in Hawaii. Um, so it's not just an Andean phenomenon. It'll grow in many different soils and climates. And so if by some miracle they're able to eradicate coca from South America, um, take a look at sub-Saharan Africa. There is no reason why coca could not flourish in that climate and soil. Mm-hmm. And again, you also have lots of ungoverned uh, or, or, or thinly governed territories where you can put in seed in the ground and come up with an illicit crop that is going to feed your family much much better than growing conventional crops. The Philippines aren't exempt from U.S. drug policy either, right? I mean, to give some background to listeners, uh, President Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines has been waging this bloody war on drug users allowing for extrajudicial murder, uh, which in December the local DEA said had killed more than 5,000 people. Uh, But those are just the official numbers. Estimates from uh, various human rights groups pegged the death toll at like 12,000 to as high as 27,000. The U.S. has had a long history of colonization in the Philippines, but is our our policy at all impacting the drug war over there? You know, for years we helped the Philippines... uh, we, I mean, the U.S. government, uh, assisted uh, their counter-narcotics efforts. Um, and then suddenly, two and a half years ago, this, this madman, Rodrigo Duterte, gets elected um, ahead of three, six months before Trump. But he was in many ways the prototype of, of Trump. Um, very similar rhetoric. Uh, Facebook played a huge role in his election and, and fake news and, and smearing opponents and that sort of thing. But also making these very uh, fascistic promises. Um, and so even before he was elected, he campaigned on a, uh, a murderous drug war platform. He claimed that um, during, the, during his campaign that the fish in Manila Bay would grow fat from all the corpses uh, he threw into the, into the bay. Um, when he took the presidency, uh, he said, well, Hitler, he wrongly claimed, killed three million Jews, six million. Uh, but he said, I will gladly kill three million drug addicts in the Philippines. Uh, and so he spoke admiringly of Hitler, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's uh, carried out an all-out bloody uh, death squad-style drug war uh, in the Philippines. Uh, and so 
thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of extrajudicial killings. Um, the number of uh, as high as 27,000, but we will never know because so many of those statistics are still, quote-unquote, under investigation, and they'll never be resolved. Um, but almost certainly those are drug, uh, drug-war-related casualties. It is insane on so many levels. Uh, number one, uh, there's no, there's no uh, trial, there's no jury, there's no appeal. You don't know who's getting killed and who's doing the killing, although it's usually the state, uh, you know, state forces, police working with death squads and, and, and assassins, some of whom are paid, you know, $400 per hit uh, to kill someone. Uh, and we don't know to what extent uh, drug gangs are using this to inform on their rivals uh, and to get them killed. Um, so once you end up on the so-called watch list, um, your life expectancy can be significantly shortened. Um, and so how you get off or how you get on that list is a great mystery. Uh, and so people can anonymously inform on people uh, and get them in, in, uh, on that list. Or if you pay right, the right bribes, you can get off that list. Uh, it's very shadowy, and there's no um, uh, <coughs> verification process of who's getting killed or why they're being killed. It could be, it could be settling old scores, uh, you know, knocking off rivals, um, some in the early days, some of the police were actually uh, killing their former uh, drug dealers that were uh, they were shaking down for fear that if they were arrested or interrogated, they might inform on the police. So the cops would then hire death squads to go kill their former uh, dealers that were you know paying them. Uh, it, it, it's it's an insane way to approach this problem. But yeah, it's incredibly bloody. But it's also getting traction, and this is you know what's really terrifying. In Bangladesh, for instance, the uh, government there is also waging a similar type of drug war. They've only killed about 200 people in the past year, but some of them have been politically motivated killings. So they're using the, the, the idea of a drug war, the pretext of saying, oh, they resisted arrest for involvement in drugs and therefore the police had to shoot them, uh, which is a very common way of killing people in the Philippines when the police do the killings. Of course, there's no body cameras. Right. And very often when they investigate, they'll find that the person who was uh, killed was executed. They'll have handcuff marks. You know, uh, they were handcuffed behind their backs. And suddenly the police will say, well, they, they lunged at us with a gun. <laughs> it's like, well, how is that physically possible when the autopsy shows that, you know, they, they were handcuffed? Uh, or they will plant a gun after, after the, the, the police kill someone. Um, and they'll, they'll drop an unmarked gun next to them. Uh, and very often you'll have right-handed people uh, or left-handed shooters uh, with their guns planted in the right hand. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these police killings have been caught on CCTV camera. It's caused tremendous outrage domestically in the Philippines. But President Duterte remains popular. That that has to be said. And so there's an appetite for this kind of easy answers. The, the kind of populist fascist uh, wave um, is is sweeping the the world. Unfortunately, and people should be very 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 alarmed. Um, whether it's uh, President Erdogan in, in Turkey, uh, or, or, or Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, or just more recently, uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. The new president of Brazil is like Trump times a thousand. Yes. Um, uh, where Trump uses rhetoric, he actually uses murder. Uh, and he's proud of using murder, and he says he's going to kill lots more people. He's pr- he says he, he was an officer during the dictatorship in Brazil, and, and says he wants to bring Brazil back to those law and order kinds of, kinds of days. Uh, he's gonna, he threatened to kill political opposition figures. Um, he's, you know, wants to wipe, basically uh, take away indigenous lands in, 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 uh, in the Amazon and basically exploit that. 
uh, and bulldoze the Amazon, it should alarm uh, everyone, whether you're you know, uh, concerned about drug policy or human rights or even the environment. Um, the lungs of the earth are going to be bulldozed, basically, uh, under the sky. Yeah, I'm very concerned. And it's like you said, this drug policy is so interdisciplinary. Um, I want to scale back a little bit. Like, what do you think is driving this populist wave? Because you do you see it in so many corners of the world, even parts of Europe, and it's it's very alarming. But what's the cause of it? Why are so many people all of a sudden like, I'm going to vote very far right? Uh, I think there are a lot of demagogues out there uh, going for low-hanging fruit. That is to say that they're scapegoating a cornucopia of social ills, many of which are structural in nature, uh, and projecting it onto different minority groups, whether they're immigrants or drug users or uh, indigenous peoples or, or darker-skinned peoples, but they're, they're scapegoating these problems. And scapegoating is a term that comes uh, out of the Old Testament, right? In the biblical era, uh, the priest or the rabbi would confess the sins of the village into the ears of a goat, a literal goat, and they would then drive the goat into the desert. And voila, your, your, your village is now ritually cleansed. This is what we're doing. This is what these demagogues are doing with social problems. That, you know, this, well, our country would be great. We would, you know, make Philippines great again if we just got rid of this group. Uh, and in that sense, it reminds me very much of the pogroms of the 19th century. Uh, in, in Tsarist Russia and, and in Eastern Europe, right, where the Tsar secret police would, uh, you know, come up with these, these smear campaigns against Jews and, and basically say all these problems are a result of the Jewish conspiracy. And if you just got rid of them, if you just unleashed holy hell on them, we will look the other way and that'll solve our problems. Uh, and we see this writ large now and it's being used in many different contexts with different victims around the world. Put another way, The Simpsons. <laughs> Not to make a joke of it, but <laughs> The Simpsons, you can learn a lot of life lessons from The Simpsons. And in one of the early episodes, there's an episode where young Bart Simpson runs for class president. And he begins his campaign by attacking his opponent. And his soundbite, I think, is the most illustrative of, of, of anything else I, I can find. Basically, he says, my opponent says there are no easy answers. Well, I say he's not looking hard enough. Right. And the, the raucous cheers. And that's a very Trumpian kind of, 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 of approach mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you, you convince people, oh, you know better than the experts. Of course, there's an easy answer to all these problems. You just got to be tougher than, than everyone else. Uh, and so at a visceral level, that appeals to a lot of people who, who look at complex problems and say, ah, it's too complicated. You just need to kick some butt, you know, and, and, and really sock it to them. That's how you fix these problems. And so we have this temper tantrum going on globally now of people thinking there really are these incredibly simplistic answers to enormously complex problems. And that's very dangerous. And Russia. But it'll be about Russia. Putin has been behind a lot of this stuff. Uh, the, the Internet Research Agency, the Russian trolls, uh, have been very active, not just in the United States, they've been extremely active in Eastern uh, Europe, uh, in a lot of the Baltic states, the neighboring countries to Russia have experiences much longer than we have in, in, in the U.S., um, but they're, they're fueling lots of division within Western Europe, within NATO, within U.K., uh, and, and more, most famously in the United States. Um, putting out lots of fake news, lots of fake social media, trying to drive wedges and divisions uh, in, in societies, um, mostly because I think Putin is, is afraid of, of, of better examples 
of, of good governance. He wants to dirty the waters uh, and get everyone confused and say, well, you can't trust anyone. Everyone's corrupt. They're all bad. And therefore, you got nothing to complain about under Putin. Um, and by some accounts, he's the richest person ever in the history of the world. <laughs> I don't know whether that's true or not, but he's amassed an incredible fortune you cannot explain by his public salary. right? And so in order to uh, he and his, 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 his oligarchs to hang on to their wealth and their power, uh, they need to convince people that you know there aren't better ways to approach uh, governance and that everyone else is just as corrupt. And that's what they've done very effectively uh, through social media, unfortunately. Back to the, um, the migrant crisis, ending the drug war is a major priority to me personally because I see it uh, intersecting into so many other societal problems like mass incarceration, immigration, poverty, and even education. Um, but do you think that, I mean, we're seeing some sanity in some parts of the world about drug policy, and it's kind of give or take. Like Canada, for example, they legalize marijuana. But they're also implementing harsher sentencing for fentanyl and that kind of thing, while at the same time they have supervised consumption rooms. Um, but we're also seeing that spreading. It's slow, it's, it's difficult, but there is progress on the drug policy front. Let's say that the United States finally ends this, this stupid war on drug users. Do you think that's going to have a big impact on, on the migrant crisis? Um. Yes and no. Uh, on the one hand, um, the, the the profits of prohibition, uh, you'll, you'll take some of the funding out of, of, of some of these gangs that offer protection uh, and do some small-scale uh, trafficking of their own. But on the other hand, uh, the, the structural problems in Central America are deep and profound, and they go back many generations and many decades uh, or centuries. And if you don't have meaningful land reform, if you don't get rid of the oligarchies that in the traditional you know, 10 families that rule the country or whatever, uh, if you don't change that formula, uh, you will never have a sustainable, uh, a just society that people will want to stay in. Uh, and unfortunately, um, the United States keeps backing uh, these, these regimes in Central America that are not very representative of their people um, in favor of so-called stability. And so when uh, there have been attempted reforms in Honduras, for instance, uh, the U.S. backed a coup uh, there against, uh, uh, against these kinds of basic reforms. And, uh, and until we solve that, until we address the reasons why people are choosing to migrate, um, the building walls and having these countermeasures will, will be futile. I want to end this conversation on a productive note. I like to try to do that uh, to give people a little bit of hope, I suppose. Um, what is there? Is, is there anything that people can do about these issues of, of drug policy? How the United States drug policy is basically exported and is fueling violence elsewhere in the world? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been, you know, in the 20 years I've been working on this, uh, I've seen tremendous progress, believe it or not. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of awful stuff going on in the drug war still. Um, and, but there's also been tremendous progress in terms of harm reduction, acceptance of that politically. Um, you can now, uh, in, with cannabis reform, for instance, uh, that's just unbelievable. It's, in the United States, it's about 66% in favor of legalization, um, according to the latest Gallup polls. When I first started in this field, it was under 30%. So you take a, a third rail polarizing political issue, um, and and we've been able to neutralize that and get majority support. That's a remarkable achievement. And now you can drive from the Arctic Circle in Alaska, through Canada, through Washington State, through Oregon, California, down through Mexico, all the way to the tip of, of, of Guatemala. That's all legal cannabis territory now. 
if you look at a map, <laughs> that, that whole swath is green. Yeah. Um, that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. Uh, so whether that translates to other drugs and other, other situations is, you know, that's the battle. So we have parts of the world that, that are going uh, in the reverse direction in terms of, of, of drug policy, but we also have a lot of progress in Western Europe, um, in the United States, in Canada, different examples of, of progress. Some steps forward, some steps back, but uh, it's important to realize that we are making a lot of progress. Um, that, that people are beginning to realize that the old uh, easy answers don't work, that uh, you can't arrest your way out of this problem, and that, you know, one of the ways to deal with uh, uh, fentanyl, for instance, and, 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 you know, the adulterated drugs is to provide pure drugs. Uh, and so I'm very excited what's happening in Vancouver, for instance. Uh, you know, the prescription uh, uh, Dilaudid plan, where, where I think 50, 50 patients are going to be given, uh, you know, hydromorphone to crush up and inject because the, the black market street supply of, of heroin is so dangerous that the government is saying, we're, we're by you with pure drugs. That's, that's, you know, keep people alive, number one, before, before any, uh, anything else. And as, as long as we, you know, adhere to that minimal standard of humanity, uh, I think we can make a lot more progress. I agree with you so much. Um, one last question. This is kind of just a little fun aside. Uh, are you still an advisor to Harry Belafonte? him uh, back in the 90s, um, helped him with his uh, memoirs and, and stuff. Uh, I talked to him occasionally, but he's not as active as he uh, as he once was. He's uh, about to turn 90, 92. Actually. Yeah. Well, he's great. I, I think he's awesome. He's a talented musician, and he, he really cares about a lot of different important issues. And, yeah, uh, just a great social act, uh, social justice activist. You know, been there since the 50s. He's been uh, just a incredible dynamo and has been a good ally in drug policy reform as well. All right. Well, was there anything else you wanted to mention? Um, just that, uh, you know, remember that this shutdown is over uh, Trump's basically racist lies. Um, that, uh, you know, he, he basically uh, made all these promises he can't possibly uh, deliver on. And so he's shutting down the government for this. The, the whole idea of the wall to stop immigrants and drugs was basically a mnemonic device developed by his, uh, his, his, his staffers. They wanted a way to get him to remind him to talk about uh, immigration as an issue because he kept forgetting. Uh, and they said, well, let's give him a simple reminder. Let's say, let's say wall, build a wall. And he thought it was a stupid idea at first. And then uh, he used it. I think it was in maybe uh, Michigan. And he got all this incredible response from the audience. And he thought, oh, this is a great issue. And so he made, he made it a central part of his campaign, you know, the, you know, build the wall, build the wall, Mexico will pay for it. Uh, and that's how this whole thing erupted. It, it was never about a wall to begin with. It was just a stupid way for his, his assistants to, get, uh, to remind him to talk about immigration as an issue. Uh, and so that's why we're having this government shutdown. <laughs> yeah, I, I really feel like it is clearly to rile up his base um, because, you know, the shutdown appeared like a couple of weeks ago, right when the, um, the what is it, the, uh, the the Mueller investigation was really heating up. There were some, some indictments that came out, I can't remember, but uh, it started to look like it was getting really serious and then suddenly, it may not even be related, this is getting into conspiratorial territory, but he, he suddenly brings the shutdown, he's trying to rile up his base as much as possible. It, it, it I don't know if there's any, this is all speculation on my part, but it seems like 
it's a, basically a power grab or a way to distract from his investigation on himself, you know? I think he does a lot of that on Twitter, uh, to, you know, new shiny object to, to you know, to obsess about. Um, but I think um, some of this, this wall stuff, last month he was willing to sign uh, the appropriations bill that had no wall funding in it whatsoever. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, his, his uh, you know, the, the right-wing uh, Fox and, and, and these radio shows, uh, these ultra-right shows, uh, started mocking him, saying that if, if you sell out on the wall, you know, you'll lose your base support. Uh, and suddenly he realized, oh, I got, I got to, I got to, you know, I, my mouth wrote a, a, a check uh, we can't cash, and so now we're in a shutdown situation because he doesn't want to alienate that one third of the electorate that still support him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, it's incredibly stupid <laughs> reason to shut down government. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. San Ho Tree is a drug policy historian and fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington. You can find him on Twitter at S-A-N-H-O Tree. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Morath, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. The cold open music is by Inequalis, and our theme music is by Glassboy. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. If you like the program and you want to support us, there are a few ways you can help. Tell a friend or two about us. Most podcasts become popular via word of mouth. Or you can also give us a decent rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash narcotica, where you'll get access to exclusive bonus content and help us pay our bills a little bit. We are so grateful to the people who help make this program possible. Thank you. If you want to send us a suggestion or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care.